Uh, this morning, we're going to, I hope you have your Bibles with you, those of you who are at home, I hope you get your Bibles out, because we're going to be deep diving into Deuteronomy chapter 1 this morning, and I'm going to give you fair warning. Uh, we're also going to be looking, because of a much fuller account in Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14. Now, if you're like me and you're at home, you're probably sitting there with a blanket on with your cup of caffeine, and you're looking across the room and saying, there's my Bible over there. I don't know if I really want to get up and go get it. I feel so really cozy and so forth. But I'm telling you, you'll want it this morning because we are really going to uh, be traveling through here. And I tell you, we can use our phones. That's okay. I do that quite often but, uh, or our tablets. But there's something about being in the pages of Scripture that are so cool because then you can write little comments down and I know everybody who's under 20 is saying, well, I can still write comments in my phone. Oh, that's great. I haven't learned to do that. So anyway, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Uh, remember last week we gave the introduction to this great book. We talked about how impacting it is throughout Scripture, how it was originally entitled the Book of Words, because that's what the first few words in chapter 1, verse 1 are in the Hebrew, that these words, then these words, and so... Uh, the Jews, for their Old Testament, for their Bible, actually, uh, just referred to it as the seraph de barim, the, the word, right? And these are really just a series of sermons that Moses has written, about five of them, that are strung together with brief snippets of narrative that someone else put together. The children of Israel are just about ready to cross into the promised land, Right? Uh, the first generation has already gone through the 40 years of wandering. Now we're ready for the conquest. And Moses is going through sermons uh, to remind them of who they are, their identity, of what they should be doing, their God, and the directions they should be heading, right? And this first sermon stretches from chapter 1 to chapter 4. So that's where we're at. We're really beginning the meat of this sermon. So it's kind of cool that I get to preach a sermon about a sermon. That, that's awesome. And we get to read what Moses himself is saying. So follow along with me. I'm going to be start off by reading Deuteronomy 1, beginning in verse 19. And Moses writes, Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. This is a clear indicative of the covenantal promise between God and Abraham, and later Isaac and Jacob and so forth. Do not fear or be dismayed. Keep that verse right there in your hearts, close to your fingertip. Do not fear. Then all of you came near me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up to the cities and to which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me. And I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshel and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, it's a good land that the Lord has given us. 
So somebody came up with the bright idea, let's go ahead and do a little bit of recon up into this new land. Again, Moses is spinning backwards 40 years into the history and talking about the parents of the people that are just about ready to start this conquest. And he says that somebody came to him and said, we need to go spy this land out. The word recon is a good word here because it actually was a military uh, conquest. It wasn't a religious conquest. They weren't trying to proselytize these people. That time had come and gone for the Canaanites, right? They had rejected God. They worshiped idols. So what was going to happen here was a twofold purpose. The children of Israel were going to cross the Jordan and they were going to establish their own communities, actually living in the homes and the cities that the Canaanites had built, uh, eating the plants and the foods that uh, the Canaanites had grown. Uh, but at the same time, they were going to wipe them out. It was a military conquest. Uh, God did not want any of them to remain. And so Moses thought, well, this is not a bad idea. Let's do a recon. Let's do a, a, an action plan by which we send men. And he says, well, I'll tell you, this is the best way to do this. Because again, there's all this inner fighting in this huge group of people. Remember, it told us that like 600,000 uh, men came out of Egypt with Moses. And he says, Let, let's do this. Uh, let's take one man from each tribe. That way there will be an equal voice for all of them. And we're going to send you out into, across the Jordan into the land. Well, it took 40 days, right? 250 miles one way. And if you follow along on the map, they start off in the southernmost part, the desert of Zin, which is part of the wilderness of Paran. And they go north all the way up to Lebel Hamath. And then they come back. And the idea was to be sneaky, quiet, not let anybody know they were there or what their purpose was, right? And when they came back, they gave a report, not just to Moses and Aaron, but to all the gathered people. They said it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Wow. Their initial part of their report sounds great. If you look back at Numbers 13, you see them saying that, which harkens us really back to Exodus chapter uh, 3, verse 8 where God first confronts Moses and says at the burning bush, I want you to be my agent and go into Pharaoh's presence and say, let my people go. And the payoff for the children of Israel will be that I will lead them by my own power into this land flowing with milk and honey. And when Moses heard the spies come back from the land, and they said it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It spoke to productivity, abundance. I'm sure his heart leapt within him. What is strange is the fact that they never really mentioned that they might have gone by and saw the place of burial for Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah. Remember, these, these stories have been told for generations how at one time their ancestors had lived in this land. And we know that Abraham bought burial ground, right, uh, by the Oaks of Mamre, and that they were buried there. Now, I don't know about your family, but my family, every time we go to north central Iowa, uh, even though we might be going to some other city, if we're going anywhere near the French cemetery at Woolstock, Iowa, we'll stop, right? Because we want to see the tombs of our ancestors, you know, my grandpa and grandma and their brothers and sisters and all these people are buried there, even an aunt and uncle. 
And if my kids are with me, I get to tell them stories, which I'm sure they're just incredibly interested in. And I tell them all about these things, people they've never met and so forth. But if you've heard those stories for some 400 years, and you have the opportunity to be by Hebron, the city that this place is near, and to see this, you're going to see it. Now, we don't know if they actually did that detour. I kind of suspect they did. But they had a purpose when they came back. And that purpose was they were terrified and they wanted to lie about what they had seen. They were terrified by the size of the cities, by the size of the walls, by the size of the people. They had convinced themselves that this was not for them. This was not for them. The children of Israel had absolutely no business going into this promised land. They couldn't do it. They talked about the Anak the men of great size, um, back in Numbers chapter 13, you'll see that where they're just saying there are these men that were so large, they were like giants, and probably they were men of Anak. You know, uh, that's a reference to earlier in the Old Testament, uh, men that probably we're going to see again with David and Goliath, uh, men of not 18 feet tall, but just large men, you know, possibly seven, eight, maybe even as much as nine feet tall. And all of a sudden, these Anak become something so powerful, they don't know how to handle it. So they decide, they do a conspiracy thing, and they decide that they're going to report something differently. Now, here's the problem. In Numbers 13, verse 28, they start this report, and they use the word, well, however, but... Consider this, epeski, right? Epeski in the Hebrew. Many a faith journey has been suddenly aborted because of these words, but. But this is what it's really like there. This is the horror of this place. It's an evil report. And I'm going to read there verse 13, or chapter 13 of Numbers. Um, and I'm going to read starting at verse 20. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. They came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people in Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation showing the fruit of the land. Remember, they brought giant cluster of grapes, right? So impressive, so awe-inspiring if you see it the right way. In fact, what they did is turned it around and made it an actual artifact of horror, Oh, look at this, how large it is. If this is the grapes, can you imagine the people that eat these grapes? Good grief. And they told to them, we came to the land which you sent us. It does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. And there it is. However, don't miss that. However, or but, the people who dwell in this land are strong, and the cities are fortified and large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan River, which was the first thing they had to cross. And if you drop even further, you can tell how sinister this report is because they really begin to lie. To lie. Uh, they said the land through which we had gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, right? 
the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim, and we, see them, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, like bugs. And so we seemed to them. So not only is there an honest effort at making a report, but they have decided for themselves that they don't want anything to do with this people, right? They don't want to go to this promised land. And so they have agreed amongst themselves that they're going to uh, do a little bit of hyperbole here, make things seem really nasty. Because actually the Nephilim, referring back to Genesis chapter 6, right? We don't really know who they are, where they came from. There's all kinds of theories. But what we do know is they were a great people. But there's sort of a spiritually evil, sinister side to the Nephilim. And people, when they used to tell stories of them, it's kind of like stories of the boogeyman. And so the Israelites all of a sudden are hearing, wait a minute, you mean they're, they're, they're descendants of these people? Yeah. They're referring back to people that were just part of the Israeli history, and they didn't know what to do with that. They, on purpose, twisted this report so that Moses, Aaron, and the people of Israel would give up on this idea of going into this land. Who is this God, you know? So their report was evil. Secondly, we're going to see that there was a rebellion at Kadesh. In Deuteronomy chapter, 20, uh, chapter 1, and we look at verse 26, we see this rebellion. It says, Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us through the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to the heavens. And besides, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. Ah, now earlier, that's what Moses said too in Numbers. Do not be afraid. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place, to Kadesh Barnea. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to which you could pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. Wow. The rebellion begins. The people have had enough. It's not just saying that they're going, well, Moses, tell us again. Are you sure that this is going to be safe? Are you sure that Jehovah is with us? We're just not confident that this is the... No, this is full-out rebellion. They believe the report of these 10 men. Of the 12 spies that went, remember, Joshua and Caleb, they're saying good things. This is the time to go. They're trying to encourage the people to just listen, to believe in Yahweh. Their God is powerful. Let's cross the Jordan. But those 10 have already come up with this scheme. And they have convinced the people that this is not the right way to go. Think about what they're doing. They're denying the power and presence of their God, which is hard to do. I mean, if I could see a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, if I had in my memory crossing through the Red Sea, seeing Pharaoh's chariots crushed by those waters, knowing that Moses 
was talking to God on Mount Sinai and clouds and lightning and thunder. But no, they denied the presence of God. They denied his promises and assurances. And they're denying their own resources. God has made them into a great nation even at this point. But they refuse to go. They're even denying the meaning of their names. For from the time of Abraham, the children of Israel had taken names and given names to their own children that spoke to the covenantal relationship of Jehovah with them, right? Abraham become Abraham, Sarai become Sarah, and so forth. And they all were speaking to the bountiful provision of God, to his protection, to his power, and to what he could give them. But in believing this report, they denied all that. It's as if the last month or months had never happened. Now, notice back in Numbers chapter 14 how pervasive this revolt is. In chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, we see three statements that lead us to believe that it wasn't just a few people believed these spies' report. It wasn't just their uh, relatives, their wives, their friends. It seems like the entire camp of Israel chose to turn their backs on Moses and on Aaron, on Joshua, on Caleb, and on God himself and believe this false report. It says, then all the congregation, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people, there's the second statement, of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron third statement, the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Meaning, we're going to go across that river Jordan, and our little ones are going to be just like lambs in the jaws of a lion. They're prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Wow. The threefold emphasis on the extent of this rebellion is important to remember because later, as God judges these people, he's not just going to judge the ten, though he does that. They all die of plague, right? Almost immediately. But the rest of them, the entire community, the entire faith community is going to be judged. Oh. They've been given over to wailing. There's a scene not of passive resignation, not of silent regret. We're to imagine by the words written here, the worst sort of rage, a picture of screaming, rending, throwing, cursing anger, an intoxication of grief. They're so mad. The more these people rage and cry, the more they try to outdo one another in their protests. We should get a picture of the people just jumping up and down. They're so full of anger. They come out of their tents just decided, committed to their plan of action. We're going to do something about this. This is a pattern of crowd psychology that leads to riots, lynchings, stormings, and rampages. Now they begin to aim their anger, not just at Moses and Aaron, but specifically at Yahweh himself. Oh. Let's look at Numbers 14.10 real quick. This is one of the most chilling and sobering verses in all of Scripture, if you understand it. It's easy to read right through it and gloss over it. 
Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, referring to Moses and Aaron. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Now, as this crowd is just frothing, they're rabid, they're so angry, they're so convinced that this whole thing has just been a ruse to get them out here. Does that make any sense? If God wanted to kill them, he wouldn't have opened the Red Sea for them, right? If God wanted to kill them, he could have done many things, leaving them in Egypt. But that fact that he brought them out there, for what? Just so he could have them to himself, so he could let them die? I don't think so. But now they're convinced of it. And they're coming after their leaders. They're so angry. And they're going to pick up stones. And they're going to mash Moses and Aaron's brains out right there. And it says, well, let's do this. And then we'll pick a new leader for ourselves, right? And we'll be happy. Yay, we got a new leader we really like. We're behind him. Yay. Now, what they find is that the leaders that God appointed are actually laying on the ground, prostrate before God, just like this on their faces. And I, I, they must have had some question in their minds. This is crazy because we're about ready to kill these guys. They don't, they're not running. They're just laying there. That's why this verse is so impacting. Because Moses has been in God's presence before. He knew that feeling when God was approaching. And he probably told his brother, get down, get down. Joshua, Caleb, get down. God's coming. It's not going to be pretty. Now, where is God? Well, if you remember the story of the tabernacle, right? God gave them specific instructions on how to construct this tabernacle. And in this walled tent city, uh, more or less, where the sacrifices took place all the time, there was a central area where God's presence dwelt, the Holy of Holies, right? This is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. They would pack it up, they would move it, and whenever the pillar of cloud would stop, they would unpack it, and they would set it up, and God was supposedly back there. Now, in that Ark of the Covenant was what? Uh, Moses' staff, there was the uh, Ten Commandments, and then there were those cherubim wings over the top. And right where they met, it is said that the Shekinah glory of God would dwell. And no one, no one was allowed to go through that curtain into God's presence. It was too holy, except for the high priest. And he, only once a year, right? It was a a thing to be totally frightened of because even the high priest had to be purified. He had to be prepared to go into the presence of God. They even sewed little bells into the garment that he wore because those bells allowed them to know that he was about the business of wearing his unum and thunum and his, and his stones that was bringing uh, the presence of Israel before their Lord for the forgiveness of sins on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement and that he was there to represent them. But if in their preparations, if in his actions, he had done anything incorrectly, God's holiness would zip out of the ark or atop the ark and it would kill him. And therefore they listened to make sure those bells were always tinkling. And if it wasn't, there was actually an instrument, right? A long hooked cane 
that they could put between the folds of the curtain and tap around and see if they could find his body and then haul him out. Being in the presence of God, that was not something you looked forward to. This was God. And now Moses and Aaron are laying flat out on the ground. Even though crowds are coming at him, yelling, screaming, wanting to kill him. We'll get new leaders. And it says in verse 10, the glory, the Shekinah glory of the Lord appeared at the tabernacle. Not a good place to be if you're in rebellion to God. And he doesn't speak to them. He speaks directly to Moses. And he says, Moses, let's, let's, let's get rid of these people. Because what it says here is that these people hold God in contempt. How long shall these people hold me in contempt, it says. And he says, Moses, I will destroy everyone. And I say, here's what I want to do. I want to start over just with you, and we will make a new people, and they will be obedient to me, and they will be part of my new covenant promise, and so forth. And Moses says, no, Lord, that's not going to be what happens. It can't be, because, you know, the nation of Egypt, those nations that have been listening and watching as we have wandered through the wilderness to get to this point, they're going to mock you. They're not going to take you seriously. Because you see, not only was the battle in Egypt against Pharaoh and his armies, it was against the gods of Egypt. Each of those plagues, you could kind of line up with one of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped, right? And so he had done that, and they had been successful in coming away from there. And now they would just say, Lord, the people around, the other nations, are just going to say, well, Jehovah, he just brought his people out there to kill them because he knew they could never take the land in reality. So he wasn't going to put himself to the test. And the Lord said, no, that's certainly not going to be what happens. And so after their little debate, God says, but we are going to have judgment. As I said in verse 11, it says, how long? Will these people treat me with contempt? It's one of the central issues that's going on here. By refusing to believe in the power of the Lord, especially in view of all the wonders they had experienced themselves, the people of Israel were holding God in contempt by their unbelief. I don't know if you've been in a position where you believe that God is leading you, that God in your faith has shown you this is what needs to happen. This is what needs to, to occur here. You need to take this step and do this. And when we don't, we probably don't think of it as anything other than, well, you know, I failed God once again. No, God looks at it as contempt because God's done miracles in your life. God sustains you. He provides for you. He protects you. He created you. And when we refuse to follow through on a step of faith, it's contempt to him. Well, let's read what God does. Okay, I'm not going to destroy them all, but this is not the end of this. Reading again in Numbers 14, and I'm going to start reading at verse 28. He says, uh, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I'm going to do. Your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, 
which you grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would take, make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said you would become a prey. Remember that earlier? When the people were saying, oh, if we cross the Jordan, he's going to have our children killed. God heard that. Don't believe that our idle words just fall on the ground, right? God hears them. I will bring them in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness. Man, I don't know about you. I can endure a lot of things not going my way. Problems, financial problems, health problems, so forth. But when it impacts my children, that's another thing, right? We care about our kids. And now they're hearing our kids are going to be in this bad situation. In fact, Moses says later that God judges down to the third and fourth generation. Until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness, according to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days a year for each day, the scouts had been gone 40 days, and so for each day they're going to be one year of wandering, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will, this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in the wilderness. They shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. Even in the Hebrew, this language is so abrupt, it's so uh, coarse, it's just full of anger. 28 times in the book of Deuteronomy, God says that he's angry, using different words, with the children of Israel. I'm angry with you. In Numbers, he says that there have been 10 times <coughs> that you have tested me. 10 times that you've done things that required discipline. And God has done. He's had it. He had been in the Shekinah glory, he had been in the ark or near the ark, the Holy of Holies. He had heard the people raging and rebelling, all of the nation, and he comes out and he finds his faithful servants laying there, showing respect, showing worship, and the rest, because of Moses' intercession, they're going to live tonight. They're going to survive this day. But what a survival. Can you imagine being in this lost generation? I mean, you have 40 years. 40 years. If you're 30 and you were part of this rebellion, you don't have to wonder how long you're going to live, right? I mean, you may die at 45, 55, but the max you're going to live, 30 plus 40 is 70. You know, if you get to 70, you know this is the time right? You can hear the hoofbeats behind you. Uh, it's tough. This is their judgment. So the children of Israel are sitting here at Kadesh Barnea, they're ready to go to the east and up and around to the Jordan and cross into the land, but now they're going to take a left instead and head west, and they're going to wander 40 years. And their children are the ones that are going to suffer for this. And the desert will be their cemetery. 
the sands will cover their bodies. I, 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 I don't know if I was one of those young people what I would think. You know, you get to that end of that 40-year period of time, and there's still one person left alive from that generation. What are you doing? Walking behind them, hoping to trip them with your staff, you know? Here's a scorpion, enjoy. You know, we can't get out of here until you die. Come on! What was it like to want to have people to want you to quit breathing? There was no celebration of your life. You were a living, breathing testimony to failure, to rebellion. Oh, God's a God of grace. We see that all the time through the Old Testament. Israel sins, God curses them, God redeems them. There's grace. God is angry at them, God curses them. They get all the way through here. But this particular generation, God says, you're done. I have had it with you. As much as they pray, as much as they weep, God says, I'm not listening. You're going to die in this desert. You're going to die in this existence. And just for the record, for those of you who are interested, uh, bringing those grapes back, I think Moses in his sermon is just putting a little twist on this. He, he calls it produce, but back in Numbers, they all knew what it was. It was grape clusters that were just gigantic. Uh, grapes don't grow in the desert, right? There's no wine in the desert. Nobody's drinking any wine for 40 more years. Think about that. Whatever the privations of living in that kind of austere life situation has just been extended way beyond where the Lord had purposed. And Joshua and Caleb are going to have to live it with them. This is their destiny as well. They may not die. Like I said, the other ten, they die of the plague according to uh, the book Numbers. Almost immediately, they're gone. But Joshua and Caleb have to lead this people for quite some time. And now they're at that place where they're getting ready to cross the Jordan. And Moses is saying, remember, remember that night. Let's not let it happen again. Never fear the things that you can see more than he who you can't see. Right? God is powerful. Rebellion has a cause and effect. First, there was the evil report. Uh, however, um, but let me spin this with gossips and rumors, untruths, lies, so that it goes my way. And then secondly, it turns into murmuring in the tents. We separate and we go back and we get all together with people that we know and like and we, we uh, just kind of continue the conversation and we make it worse and we make it worse far away, by the way, from any spiritual authority. Thirdly, the hearts melt in fear. Fear plays a huge role in this story. Fourthly, they demand to go back to slavery, and they accuse God of being evil. And that ends, lastly, with judgment. When I was reading this passage originally, I just wanted to weep for these people. I think I look at this and think I've probably been one of those who had been, would be convinced by the report of the ten. I hope I wouldn't be. But this is a faith venture. This is a step against what 
appears to be truth because you're believing a lie, we have to have our eyes on God. We have to listen to truth, even in our most critical moments in life, right? Well, it's not all dismal. My third point this morning is that there's a man here worth emulating, a man by the name of Caleb, great man. Uh, he's kind of in the background of this story, you know, uh, except the point where it says, and Moses quotes him directly of saying, we can certainly do this. I love it in the Hebrew because it's a double emphatic. We can do this, people. Don't do this crazy thing. Don't try to stone Moses and, and Aaron. Don't reject God's testimony. We can do this four times. In the scriptures, it says that Caleb was completely filled with Yahweh. Wow, I would love that. I would love that to be said about me. But Caleb lived out what he talked. He walked the walk, right? I have a little chart. I don't know if it's up on the wall, but it just kind of shows us the things that characterize the contrast between the children of Israel and Caleb's uh, attitude. The children of Israel were unwilling to go up. Caleb said, let's go. The children of Israel were rebellious against Yahweh's command. Caleb said, let's, let's, let's not rebel. Let's believe. Let's trust. The Israelites sulked in their tents. Caleb was busy running around telling the people that he loved, calm down. Don't believe the lies. Uh, the people of Israel were accusing Yahweh of hatred and betrayal. Caleb was assuring them that Yahweh was still on their side. He was probably telling them the real story of his spy journey. Hey, don't listen to these guys. You know, we can do this. We can take this place. The people of Israel, their hearts were melting. They were terrified and fearful. Caleb was challenging the people not to fear, according to Numbers 14.9. The people refused, ultimately, to trust God. Caleb said, I'm fully confident. We can certainly do this. I love Caleb's story because even though it's outside of the parameters of our scripture this morning, we read in Joshua chapter 14, and I'm just going to read this real quickly, beginning in verse 10, this great story of him. So as I said, the children of Israel are eventually going to cross the Jordan. They, under the generalship of Joshua, conquer the southern part of Palestine and then the northern part and so forth. And they come up to a very sticky situation a city that refuses to fall, and it's the very city of Hebron that the spies originally saw, where the Anakim, where the Anak live, right? And this is what Caleb says. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenzanite, said to him, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, that night of the rebellion, concerning me? I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made, my heart, made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God, wholly. And Moses swore in that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever because you have wholly followed the Lord your God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years, this is Caleb talking, since the day the Lord spoke to Moses, 
while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I'm 85 years old. Caleb's life has gone. He's 85 years old. He's been a faithful man the whole time. Man, <laughs> yeah, I don't know about you, but you know, talking about tombstones and visiting cemeteries, I would love it if on my tombstone it just said, I wholly followed God. That's Caleb's testimony. He says, I am still strong today as I was in the days of Moses. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for coming and going. So now give me the hill country to which the Lord spoke to me on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim, the giants, were there. That's Hebron, with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will hear me and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. Joshua ends up blessing him and says to him that this will be your inheritance. So Caleb is basically saying, give me the most difficult city. I'll take them on. I don't care how big they are because my God is bigger. And if by some chance the Lord decides that I should die in battle at this very gate of this city, I am willing to do that. When we think about great people of Scripture, we've got to put Caleb right there at the top, a man of incredible integrity, honesty, courage, and faith. He loved his Lord like few others. So what do we do with this passage this morning? Well, as I quickly close here, I'm just going to say this. Don't kadesh it. Don't kadesh it. You know, kadesh barnea, that's where they're there. They're ready to do whatever God told them to do, and they rebel. They believe lies. I don't know about your life, but there have been times in my life where I really felt God is leading me. And I had to come to a point of whether I was going to obey him, trust him, and do what he said or not. There's two things that work against us in this situation. The first one is fear. I told you to keep your eyes close on that, but fear. Their hearts melted within them. The words of Caleb and Joshua, the two good spies, were not listened to. Everyone else listened to the words of walled cities, strong men, giants, even the fabled Nephilim. The giant clusters of grapes should have been an omen of great things, but instead it was taken as an omen of doom, right? They feared. No one talked about Yahweh's grace. None recited his miracles. No one said, hey, don't worry about it. Remember what he just did to the Egyptians? Forgotten was God's act and their behalf, right? The thunder of Sinai, the fire of God, his speaking and delivering and gracing his people beyond imagination, all these things were forgotten. Fear, when unchecked, becomes its own fuel, a self-propelling force. It's a self-consuming absorption with terror that raged through the camps of the people and sometimes grips our own hearts. What are we going to do now? How are we going to exist as a church when this has happened? Oh, this is terrible. God is sovereign. He can go into battle for you. He will. You have to step out in faith. Often I hear people say, I wish I could see God act on my behalf like he does on people in Scripture. Or when I hear the testimony of other people, he just seems to always be doing things for other people. Well, let me ask you this. Where are you stepping out in faith? Where are you stepping out in faith? How bold is your faith in Christ? Whatever your situation this morning, God can handle it. As Caleb said, he can certainly emphatically do it. Secondly, 
don't think with the BC mind. That means before Christ. The part, problem for the Israelites is they were thinking the way they used to think when they were still slaves. They were thinking about being provided for, even though it meant that they were limited. They thought about their lives when they didn't have to worry about where the next meal was coming from. Uh, they weren't willing to walk in faith. And sometimes when we get in these situations, we ignore the truths of God. We forget the possibilities because we want the sureties. Don't think with that mind that you used to have before Christ. My point is this. Remember this. God is not judging the Amorites, the Amalekites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Egyptians in this passage. He's judging his people. Now, we like to hear sermons about grace and Christ, and I know that. And we're supposed to go to Christ every time we preach a passage. But I think the important thing here this morning for let this word speak for itself is to remember that God holds his people at certain standards. He expects certain things from them. And I think minimally it's worship. It's giving of our hearts and lives. And then secondly, it is walking in faith, not in sight, but in faith of what he has shown us. We never want to put ourselves in the same positions as these Israelites. We don't want to be the ones whining, why don't we have food? You know, why, why don't I have enough money? Why don't I have the perfect health? Why is my family so screwed up? That's not trusting God. That's not faith walking. Be like Moses. If you feel God approaching, fall on your face. Ask his forgiveness. Commit yourself to him and to doing whatever he actually tells you to do, no matter the cost. I want to leave you this one line this morning. Someone had written, and I think it's good to remember. God has time, and the wilderness has sand. Sometimes people say to me, well, Dave, I feel like God isn't leading. I, I feel like I'm just out in the hallway waiting for God's direction. I, I thought he was saying go this way, and I'm getting tired of it. I'm sick of it. I want direction. God has time. He's doing something with you. He's working on you. Don't ever lose faith in that. But in case you do, remember this also, the desert has sand. God has time, and the desert has sand. Jesus said, for he who has ears to hear, let him hear.